Hello and welcome to episode 24 of The Toth Zone, a podcast about how an obsession with music gives us a reason to live and can also wreck our lives. I'm your host, James Toth. Back after a week break. Thanks for bearing with me. Uh, I may be taking more of these as we get closer to summer and life as we sort of know it begins reactivating. I started this podcast at the beginning of the pandemic when recording and touring with other people, not to mention getting paid to write about artists recording and touring, became impossible. Uh, But now that the great thaw is upon us, I find myself getting busy with many other things. Some of those things are exciting, and I'm excited to eventually tell you about them. But that said, we're going to keep going as long as it makes sense to keep going. Uh, But I don't want this podcast to ever feel perfunctory or tossed off. As long as it stays fresh and is still fun, and the number of listeners holds steady or increases, the Toth Zone will continue even if that means a more erratic uploading schedule. In any case, thanks for sticking around. There were many responses to our most recent poll question, which was, what's a song you dislike by an artist you love? And the bonus question, what's a song you like by an artist you do not? I was reminded, uh, getting all these answers, that a good portion of my listenership is made up of fellow deadheads, because so many of you mention Grateful Dead songs And uh, this is appropriate, I think, because, I mean, the Dead are a great band with a disproportionate amount of not-great songs. I I don't think anyone would take me to task saying that. Four of you chose Money Money as the Dead song you dislike the most, and I support this choice, uh, though there are some I dislike more, like What's Become of the Baby. You can see episode number 18 for my feelings on that. A few others mentioned When Push Comes to Shove and Victim or the Crime. Also, good good choices. Other disliked songs by beloved bands include two votes for A Man Needs a Maid by Neil Young, also two votes for Mother Earth by Neil Young, and one for Natural Beauty. I don't agree with that last one. Uh, Jesus Etc. by Wilco. You're crazy, Joel. That one's great. Uh, Also Common Sense by Wilco. Changes by Black Sabbath. I don't agree with that one either. Uh, Proud Mary by Credence. Sex War by Lungfish, Tough Titty Rap by Sonic Youth, Guilty of Being White by Minor Threat, Cashmere by Led Zeppelin, Dylan's This Dream of You, Run for Your Life by The Beatles, Jerry Garcia Band's I'll Take a Melody, Western Homes by Pavement, Mexican Cousin by Fish, Tom Waits Somewhere, the theme from West Side Story, Radiohead got three entries, Creep, Feral, and Polk Pull, what is that song, Polk Pull revolving doors. I don't know. I don't really listen to radio yet. Uh, Ween's Spinal Meningitis. Uh, my sister-in-law, Rona, likes Skinner, but hates Freebird. Rona! Freebird is fantastic, and I am determined to spend our next Thanksgiving together trying to convince you of this, so get ready. I'm sure everyone in the family will enjoy that. My friend Mike Dixon, who is the undisputed biggest Chris Christopherson fan on Earth, cites Blame It on the Stones as the only non-Chris and Rita song He doesn't like at all. As for the bonus question, uh, more Grateful Dead here. I guess there are just as many dead haters or dead agnostics in this crowd as there are fans. Touch of Grey and Terrapin Station each got one vote. Other answers to the bonus question were Lady by Styx, Malibu by Hole, Neil Diamond's Brother Love's Traveling Salvation Show, Slaughter's Fly to the Angels, 
Smile by Pearl Jam, and Of a Lifetime by Journey, which I had previously never heard, but which does indeed rule. So thanks, Nigel, for turning me on to that one. Okay, my turn. Uh, though you guys have mostly covered a few of my favorite bands here, uh, I'd add War of Man and Let's Roll to the Neil Young list. Uh, and I'll vote for The Waiting Room by Genesis. Uh, maybe it's low-hanging fruit, but, you know, this this self-indulgent fiasco wouldn't be such a bummer if it didn't serve to blemish an otherwise unassailably perfect, perfect album. Look, you think I'm averse to noisy jams? Surely you jest, but th- this isn't even a particularly good jam. It doesn't advance the story. Ah, the waiting room. I'd also nominate the kinks People Take Pictures of Each Other for the same reasons. Uh, it, this song alone disqualifies the album on which it appears from being a perfect 10. Lastly, the band's life is a carnival bugs the hell out of me. It's such an inane, meaningless chorus. Life is a carnival, believe it or not. Like, the notion of life being a carnival is not one that would force me to have to reckon with my beliefs about what life is or is not. It's merely an opinion of of a sort. One I can't even begin to parse. Like what? Like, hot take alert, but life is a carnival, man. Hey, don't at me, bro. You can argue with me if you want, but facts are facts. Dumb. Song I like by a band I dislike. I haven't listened to mainstream radio since the mid, maybe early 90s, so all my possible answers would come from that time. Uh, Like, I very much dislike Green Day, but I'll concede that When I Come Around is a pretty good single. And I thought No Doubt's cover of Talk Talk's It's My Life was miraculously, astonishingly maybe, not blasphemous. And lastly, if you omit the abominable rap at the end... Blues Traveler's The Hook is a pretty great song. Oh, with that rap. I guess Runaround's pretty good, too. Anyway, thank you for participating, and please do stick around till the end of the episode for the next poll question. And now, if you will indulge me, I'd like to read for you a brief Amazon review of my band Wooden Wand and the Vanishing Voices' 2005 album, Zell, posted in July of that same year. You can go there and read along if you like. The review is titled, These Guys Are Losers. Here's the review. I saw Wooden Wand and the Vanishing Voice last weekend, and they were total jerks. They played at this small venue with a couple other bands, one of which was from the town where they were playing. They were really rude during their performance and threw stuff at the band, plus yelling out rude comments like, Play quieter so we can talk over your performance. Then when they were confronted for their behavior, they said, Do you know who we are? Like they were better than the average human being for being signed on to kill rock stars. I had never seen anything so immature and embarrassing in my life. They have a big fat ego and probably psychological problems. Plus, their music isn't very impressive. Skip this album and look for some good indie rock that's worth your money. Let me explain. This Amazon review of my band, which will likely exist on the World Wide Web long after me and my band and the author of the review and all of you shuffle off this mortal coil, was written by a disgruntled fan who came to see our show in DeKalb, Illinois. I remember this show very well, so 16 years later, I'd like at last to offer our side of the story. Wooden Wand and the Vanishing Voices' music was largely improvised, especially in a live setting. 
Now, occasionally, this improvisation would extend beyond the actual performance to logistical matters, as when a venue didn't have a PA for our vocals, or lacked the appropriate number of outlets for our various instruments and devices and machines. On the tour in question, we played, on two different occasions, the parking lot outside of the venue rather than inside on its stage, simply because it made more sense to do that. It was just more space. At another show, finding the performance space inadequate, we performed on the steps of a nearby fire escape, with each band member a few steps apart. People responded really well to it, and it made for one of the most memorable gigs of the tour. Now, we were lucky to be flexible enough to do this. I mean, there was no Margaritaville in our repertoire. I mean, not many of our fans called out for specific songs, though some did. And the band, over a short period of time, kind of earned a reputation for never playing the same set twice. So we viewed this as an extension of our craft. We would retrofit ourselves, in good faith, into any situation, no matter how weird, uncomfortable, or suboptimal. Now, this is a band, after all, who once plotted to do an entire tour uh, via hitchhiking, and we never actually got to do it, but it was a good idea. We just got very good at adapting to situations that might have forced other bands to cancel. Uh, we rallied, rose to the occasion, you know, made lemonade, as the aphorism goes. It sort of became our thing. And so it was in DeKalb, Illinois. We arrived with our touring mates, Castanets, at the venue to find a square-shaped concrete basement with no room for us to set up our large amount of gear. At the time, we were traveling with a full drum kit, a homemade harp, several guitars, several hand drums, a bass, and Lucas's ever-growing pile of cassettes and electronics. Hmm, said Lucas, assessing the situation. What if we did a quad plus one set? The concept he suggested was one we'd attempted a few times, in which the five individual band members would spread out around the perimeter of whatever room we happened to be playing, in effect surrounding the audience, and we would each play toward the middle, creating a sort of 5.1 surround sound experience. Cool, right? I mean, that's a cool idea. Well, rather than be bummed out about the venue, which was probably more accustomed to hosting singer-songwriters and maybe three-piece rock bands, we began to get excited about the show. We kind of loved when obstacles became challenges. My favorite card in Eno's Oblique Strategy deck, Just Carry On. Now, despite being the only touring bands on the bill, ostensibly the draw, Castanets and Wooden Wand were slated to open the show. Now, this is pretty common in smaller towns, for those of you who don't know. It's not to be taken as an insult. It usually works to the touring band's benefit. At small shows in small towns, a good portion of the audience is typically made up of friends of the local band. And if their friends play first, well, the audience will often leave, and the touring act will play to an empty room. By playing first, you ensure that whoever is there will stick around. We drew straws with castanets, and it was determined that they would play first, and we would play second. Following castanets intimate set, which was great despite some mild chatter in the room, the members of our band began to take our stations around the room to set up our gear. As soon as we began playing, something felt very wrong. I spotted a guy getting in Jessica's face as she played slide guitar. Later she would tell me he was hovering over her saying, Unsure. Unsure. Indecision. Defeat. Lucas had even bigger problems. Someone kept stepping on his cords, at one point unplugging his keyboard and mixer. I played as best I could, but the murmuring in the room grew louder and was beginning to drown out our music. The chatter became boisterous, loud, and distracting. Later, 
Heidi, who you met last episode, and Lucas would report the two guys were rudely engaging in a loud conversation right in front of them as they played. I began playing louder, trying to drown out the noise, but this also had the effect of drowning out my bandmates, sort of defeating the purpose of our improvisation. I mean, if we can't hear each other, we can't react or respond to what's going on. At one point I looked up and standing less than four feet from me was a person having a conversation on a cell phone. I tried to ignore it and just kept looking down at my effects pedals, just trying to run out the clock. I felt cornered. The feeling in the venue felt oddly but undeniably hostile. Then, just when it seemed like things couldn't get worse, someone from the venue thought it would be a funny or good idea to hand a live microphone to a small toddler in the room. Poo-poo! Car-car! intoned the young boy into the microphone, overdriving the PA. I know it sounds funny now, but it really wasn't funny then. Some fans of ours who'd driven to see our band began shushing people, but by then it was too late. Lucas was the first to retreat. He unplugged his gear, flung the cable dramatically, and flipped the bird to no one in particular. Oh well, not our night, right? As we began to pack up our stuff, we noticed that the local band setting up to play was comprised of many of the same assholes who just ruined our set. Lucas confronted one of them who said, Gee, sorry man, but we were talking about your music. Sure. We decided to get revenge. Heidi, Jessica, and Lucas, along with several members of Castanets, positioned themselves directly in front of the local band as they began their first song. Immediately, our gang began to enact vengeance. Lucas loudly and messily devoured a large bucket of fried chicken, inches from the singer's face. Crumbs and grease trickled everywhere as he chewed with his mouth open and made tearing and growling sounds like a rabid animal. I don't even know where he managed to procure a bucket of chicken so quickly, but Lucas is a mysterious man. Jessica took out her phone and called Ray from Castanets, who was standing beside her, and the two began loudly chatting. Sayard, noticing this, took the cue and dialed Heidi, and the four of them proceeded to hold loud cell phone conversations with each other, right in view of the band. The local band kept their cool for a few songs before imploding, forced, in view of this act of psychic terrorism, to abandon their set as we had ours. Jarvis, who is always pragmatic, sensed trouble. He leaned over and whispered to me that we ought to load the gear into the van as quickly as possible. Just as he feared, a loud argument soon erupted inside the venue. Jarvis and I surreptitiously began loading the gear into our two vans parked outside. But someone from the other band or the venue kept turning out the lights so we couldn't gather our stuff, mostly black road cases and poorly packed musical detritus. The loud argument spilled outside. An attendee, who I would later come to learn as the author of the Amazon review I read you, was attempting to scold Heidi for being, quote, rude to the local band with whom he was friends. Extolling their virtues as consummate professionals, he told us we were out of line. Did you see what happened during our set? Heidi asked. I didn't see your set, he admitted. What? Yeah, he said. I got here late because I had to work. You know, work. I know you guys don't know anything about work. Oh, that did it. Lucas was holding a glass beer bottle and smashed it in frustration on the concrete. I felt his frustration, and we all did. We were far from home, and now we were in a hostile environment. We don't know anything about work, Lucas repeated. Do you have any idea what we've been doing over the past four weeks? You don't know us. I'm guessing this is from whence came the whole do-you-know-who-we-are bit in the review. But do you see how things can get lost in translation? 
I mean, some of you have been listening to me talk for 23 episodes of this podcast. Can, can you imagine me or anyone I would even ever associate with saying, don't you know who we are? Anyway, luckily, cooler heads prevailed and no punches were thrown. The promoter tried to stiff us on the door money, of course, but we weren't going to leave without getting paid. Now, with the Castanets crew, we were 10, and I'm not sure anyone wanted a rumble, and given the adrenaline, we might have been ready for one. Now, in some ways, just another mediocre day on the road, one I might have forgotten had it not been immortalized in an Amazon review forever. As such, it will live in infamy. A similar incident occurred a few days later in Buffalo. Just days earlier on the road, Heidi received some terrible news of a death of a loved one. Obviously, there were no second thoughts about flying her home to be with her family. This made our band a quartet. Our band, like many bands, was more than the sum of its parts, and the loss of Heidi was incalculable. Now, we'd always circulated various guest players in and out, and we had auxiliary members and stuff, but by now we were a core, especially on tour. The first few shows we did as a quartet were okay, as we began to adapt to our new dynamic, both on stage and off. But there was another wrinkle. Even before this tour began, Lucas had warned us in advance that he wouldn't be able to make the Buffalo show. By sheer coincidence, a good friend of his just happened to be getting married in Buffalo the same night as our show, and he was asked to be a member of the wedding party. At the time, it didn't seem like a big deal, but now with Heidi absent, this meant we'd be performing in Buffalo as a trio, down from five. The set we played in Buffalo seemed to go on forever, and I had the distinct feeling that we were all just trying our best to get through it. We finished and began packing up our stuff. Jessica headed over to the merch table to deal with a small crowd of people, who were already gathering to purchase our wares. Exhausted and overwhelmed by the past few days, I headed to the small backstage area and slumped down to catch my breath. Just then, the promoter burst in. What the fuck was that? He bellowed, whiskey on his breath. It seems our set was too short for his liking. That was bullshit, he said. You only played for ten minutes. This wasn't true. I was in the habit of recording all of our shows on that tour and I could plainly see from my little recorder that we had in fact played for 21 minutes. After I informed the promoter of this, he argued that 20 minutes wasn't a show. Feeling philosophical rather than combative, I was really tired. I began listing off all the bands I'd seen who were practically famous for playing short sets. Uh, the Locust, Harry Pussy, more or less every punk band that ever played on a six-band bill. This, needless to say, did not satisfy the promoter. People are pissed, he said. Now, this got to me. I mean, yeah, the guy was being needlessly aggro, but throughout the tour, we'd had fans driving from as far as 300 miles to see us play, and I didn't want anyone to feel ripped off or scammed. Even though the line at the merch table seemed to suggest that people weren't exactly asking for their money back, I had to consider the accusation that we had somehow let people down. Okay, I sighed, reaching for Jarvis's still-uncased guitar from the green room's putrid naugahyde sofa. I'll go out and play a few more songs, I said, assuming this would mollify him. It's too late, he said, still yelling. Almost everyone is gone now. Why was he making this situation such that there was literally no way for us to make it right? I mean, was there no compromise we could reach? And then suddenly, with his next statement, it became perfectly clear. I don't see why I should even pay you guys, he said. I rose from the sofa and informed him we weren't leaving until we were paid. Fuck you, he said, and shoved me. I shoved him back harder. Just then, in the nick of time, Jessica, who had been at the merch table and unaware of the row backstage, 
entered the green room and got between us. Whoa, whoa, fellas, she said. What's the problem? The promoter and I pleaded our respective cases. Jessica diplomatically explained to the promoter about the unexpected loss of Heidi, about our recent van troubles, about everything. I didn't feel he deserved an explanation, but her explanation seemed to charm the promoter enough to defuse the situation. Come on, man, she said finally. You got a hundred percent of what we are right now. Give us a break. Look, she continued, reaching into her pocket and producing a few twenties. People bought records. No one is upset but you. A happy ending here. Less than an hour later, the promoter, the sound guy, and the one-night-only wooden wand trio were somehow laughing and drinking together. I have no idea how this happened. There's like a scene missing in between, but I guess once we found some common ground, the promoter paid us and even insisted on buying me a shot of whiskey. When I remember it, it was almost exactly like that scene in Scorsese's Mean Streets, where a huge melee erupts and then a cop breaks it up, and all the people who were involved in the brawl just settle down and have a drink together as if nothing happened. I mean, it was, it was really like that. All the same, I refused to play Buffalo for several years following this incident, and I'll never play Charleston, West Virginia ever again, for Charleston, West Virginia was the scene of my least favorite show I've ever played, but I'll tell you about that one some other time. Not all of the worst shows I've played bore the threat of violence. Some of them were just crushingly, heartbreakingly bleak. My band was playing a cool punk rock, hippie, hybrid, art space, coffee shop kind of place in Redding, California. Population, about 90,000. We loaded in, we got settled, and we soon noticed that no one was showing up, which is, you know, no big deal. We were hanging out with the owners of the place, uh, they were husband and wife, and they were being really nice to us. They were plying us with drinks and coffee and food. And the place is really cool, it's well lit and clean, painted in happy, agreeable colors, with a huge psychedelic mural on the wall with the name of the venue below. Still, there is something not quite right about our hosts, but I just assumed it was just because no one was coming to the gig. I finally said to the woman co-proprietor, This is outrageous. Don't you know who we are? No, I'm kidding. I didn't say that. I said, Hey, you know, it's okay. This happens sometimes. It's a Wednesday night. And anyway, we're happy to be here and hang out with you guys. She seemed grateful, but still sort of downcast. What a nice guy I am, I think, letting her off the hook like that despite my not having seen a single poster advertising our show anywhere on the premises. But like I said, it was no big deal. They seem like nice people, and Reading isn't exactly known as a hotbed of psychedelic, improvised, freak-folk jam enthusiasts. Okay, so we wait around a little bit, but at a certain point, it's painfully obvious no one is coming to see this show. And in this situation, which almost every dues-paying band is confronted at least once, you can either go through the motions and play your set to an empty room, or you can cut your losses and bail. You know, hope to get a hotel room early enough to get in a few hours of drinking and takeout and forensic files. But because our band recorded most of our shows, and because, like I said, a large portion of our sets around this time were improvised, we always just sort of regarded these situations as like glorified rehearsals, or even recording sessions. And so, after being encouraged by our hosts to play the show, we set up and began to jam, giving them a very uh, private concert. The husband did sound for us, so there wasn't even an indifferent or frosty sound guy to play for. Just the two of them. About five minutes into our set, I hear the soft, high-pitched wheeze of a glass door opening, and I think, oh good, someone else to play for. A rosy-cheeked, middle-aged man carrying a ladder nods to us in friendly acknowledgement, and then proceeds, as we are performing, to lay down a tarp and pitch the ladder on top of it. 
He then produces a roller and a bucket of paint, and begins to paint over the beautiful mural we were admiring just minutes earlier. I look up, and the woman is in tears, being comforted by her husband, who has understandably abandoned his post at the soundboard. We wrap up the set as quickly as possible and begin tearing down. I'm sorry, the dude says. He too is now choking back tears. You see, he explained, this is our last night open for business. We lost our lease, and tomorrow they're turning this place into a Starbucks. So, if you ever find yourself ordering a venti iced soy mocha latte at a Starbucks in Redding, California, pour a little out for a great little mom-and-pop art space slash coffee shop that used to be, but is no more, and know that somewhere beneath three mils of eggshell white interior paint, there is a beautiful mural. And maybe if you listen really closely, you might hear the echo of a band of losers with big fat egos and psychological problems. Their 35-watt solid-state orange practice amplifiers, still humming from within the deep and timeless, lonely and infinite, Northern California void. Thank you for listening. You can find me on Twitter at JimmyJackToth and on Patreon at patreon.com slash thetothzone. If you're not already a patron, please do consider pledging. Tiers begin at only $5 a month. You can also reach me at thetothzone at outlook.com. Finally, here's a new poll question. My sister Carrie suggested this one. Now, Carrie designates certain albums as flow albums, as in albums that flow perfectly from start to finish. You can play them all the way through without skipping anything because they lack the vibe-annihilating outliers like, say, The Waiting Room by Genesis. There's no skits or conspicuous interludes. You don't get distracted at any point when they're playing. They're just albums in any genre that have a consistent mood throughout. Now, I don't know how Carrie specifically defines this, but for our purposes, it just needs to sustain a mood. It doesn't need to sustain a good mood. Not trying to lead the witness here, but just to use an example, Lou Reed's Berlin is a flow album. Rain and Blood is a flow album. No one ever played either of those albums to unwind after a long, hard day. So the object is not to name an album that's suitable for any occasion, or that you can play in any company, or one that acts as a bomb. But it could be any of those things. It just needs to be an album that would sound funny broken up into individual songs on a playlist or a mixtape. So, what do you say? See you next episode, at which point I will have had my first vaccine. Woohoo! Till then, this is The Toast Zone. <laughs>